Welcome to Core of the Matter, the weekly public affairs show of 90.3 The Core. I'm your host, Yashwant Manjana. And this week, we have an awesome guest for you guys. Jack Cole, founder of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. It's a four-part interview that I conducted with, with Cole last week. And it's all about why we should legalize all drugs in this country, not just marijuana, but even hard drugs. And uh, before he uh, started law enforcement against prohibition, Jack was with the New Jersey State Police for 14 years in uh, narcotics. And his organization, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, represents 50,000 people. It started with just him and a few of his uh, cop friends, and now it represents not just police officers, but prosecutors, judges... DEA agents, FBI agents, all in favor of legalizing all drugs. So, you know what? It's going to be a fascinating conversation. And by 8.05 tonight, I guarantee you won't think about the war on drugs the same way again. And I don't think that's hyperbole by any stretch of the imagination. So, uh, you know what? Without further ado, I'm just going to take you to the interview. And I hope you guys enjoy it. And I hope you find it as fascinating as I did. So, thank you for joining us here on Core of the Matter. Let's get to it. Okay, so Jack, just to start things off, can you uh, tell us a little bit about what LEAP's overall mission is and uh, how do you go about accomplishing it? All right, when I, when I retired from the uh, New Jersey State Police, I felt very bad about my part in implementing what today I feel is not only a failed uh, drug policy, it's... Uh, it's also far worse. It's a self-perpetuating, constantly expanding policy disaster. So I sat down with four other police officers, and we created uh, an organization called LEAP, which stands for Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And the way we, we did that, we tried to decide what law enforcers should really be interested in doing today and when we boiled it down to the essence, we came up with four things that we thought we should be trying to reduce, death, disease, crime, and addiction. And sadly, all four of those categories are made just infinitely worse by the war on drugs. So that wasn't what we wanted at all. What we decided we did want after much study was we want to end drug prohibition just like we ended alcohol prohibition in this country in 1933. Because as law enforcers, we realized that when we ended that nasty law, Al Capone and all his smuggling buddies were out of business. They were off our streets. They were no longer out there killing each other to control that very lucrative market. They were no longer killing police officers. You know, and we're, we're caught in fighting just a literally a useless war in the alcohol prohibition, just as we are today with the drug prohibition. And they were no longer killing our children who got caught in crossfire and drive-by shootings. So we know that if we legalize these drugs, we can completely end the violence. So what was it about your experience at the New Jersey State Police that led you to create LEAP? Well, I, I uh, joined the State Police in 1964. We had 1,700 troopers. We had a seven-man narcotic unit always seemed perfectly adequate for the job we needed to do. And uh, six years later, we still had exactly those same numbers until 
October of 1970, which is when I went into narcotics. And in October of 1970, at the beginning of the war on drugs, we went from a seven-man narcotic unit to a 76-person narcotic bureau. And this was all paid for by the federal government, who had passed uh, uh, massive funding bills to give tremendous amounts of money to any police department willing to hire police officers to fight Richard Nixon's war on drugs. Richard Nixon was actually the person that coined and created the, the term. When we started in 1970, give your audience a quick idea of what what the difference is between the beginning of the war and today. In 1970, we really didn't have much of a drug problem. What little drug problem we did have was mainly soft drugs, drugs like marijuana, hashish, really hard drugs like heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine were virtually unheard of back in 1970, certainly unheard of compared to what they are today. And the reason I say that is uh, if you uh, go and you look at the statistics from that year, you'll find that uh, when we started the war on drugs, when I started working in the streets buying those drugs, uh, heroin, for instance, was coming in, street-level heroin was coming in at one and one-half percent pure. It was called garbage drugs on the, on the street, not because it was particularly bad drugs, but because it was so diluted down to have enough to go around, it was coming in at one and one-half percent pure. So they actually had to shoot two bags of this to get high once. According to DEA, last year, street-level heroin was coming in at 60% pure. And when I started kicking doors in 1970 uh, in the Narcotic Bureau, a good seizure for a local or state cop might be one ounce of cocaine or a quarter ounce of heroin, but today look what we're seizing. We are making individual seizures of multiple tons of each of these drugs. By 2002, the largest one I saw was uh, 10 tons of heroin was seized, one seizure, and 20 tons of cocaine, one seizure. But nothing changes on the street except the drugs keep getting cheaper, more potent, and far easier for our children to access. When I say cheaper, I really mean cheaper, according to DEA, the wholesale price for cocaine has dropped 60% since the beginning of the war, and the wholesale price for heroin is down 70% since the beginning of the war. I'm sure you realize that if the war on drugs were doing anything productive whatsoever, those prices would be going up, not down. Okay, so what was the stated purpose of the war on drugs, and what do you think the real purpose was? The stated purpose of the war on drugs is to end, in quotes, the drug problem in the United States. And by drug problem, they mean that uh, we were we were supposed to stop all importing of drugs into the country. We were supposed supposed to stop the the individual sales of these drugs on our streets. We were supposed to do away with drug addiction in the United States. We're supposed to keep it out of the hands of our children. Uh, if the war on drugs works, then the, the drugs, the 
cost of drugs would be driven so high that nobody could afford them, and, and the, uh, they just wouldn't be able to supply them. The real fact of what has happened is this has gotten to be a worse problem every single year since we started. DEA, for instance, estimated that uh, before the war started that we had a, about 4 million people above the age of 12 who had ever used an illegal drug. Now, if you go back and factor that into that possible population at that time, that was 2% of that population. Today, the EA is telling us we have 112 million people above the age of 12 who have used an illegal drug. That is 46% of this population. So we went from 2% to 46% of the population using drugs under this war on drugs. Looks to me like we're going the wrong direction. All right, Jack, my name is Sarah. I'm also with the Corps. Thank you so much for coming on with us. You made a comment when you were speaking at the beginning of this interview about how once prohibition ended, all of a sudden you saw mob crime go down. Um, if if you were complete going through with uh, your mission with LEAP and what effect do you think this would have on border violence that we have now with Mexico and drug cartels in Mexico and smuggling across the border? What effect do you think um, legalizing would have on this or ending the drug war would have on this? It would end the violence that is the result of drug prohibition. It would be over. Now, how did uh, the work of police officers change? I mean, you were a police officer before the drug war started. Can you tell us a little bit about how police policies changed after this uh, drug war started? Sure. Before it started, uh, we worked more in the in the ways of uh, community policing. We were interested in solving problems before they became crimes, and uh, the, the goal wasn't to arrest as many people as you could possibly arrest. The goal was to keep peace. That's why we were called peace officers. Then when the war on drugs was created, actually, and it, it had nothing to do with drugs, I believe, it had everything to do with uh, mainly racism and power. Definitely uh, interested in talking to you about how the war on drugs is is taking the place of of Jim Crow in this country. Really, it has. But let's let's go back to your earlier question, and and the answer to that is, with the war on drugs, everything changed in policing. Instead of becoming peace officers, instead of going out and uh, arresting people because of the crime they committed, we went out and we arrested people supposedly because of the crimes that we imagined that they would commit sometime in the future. Uh, did you ever see that movie, um, Minority Report? Yeah, I have seen Minority Report. You're talking about the, the Tom Cruise movie? Yes, yes, where, where they have three people there that lay on a little pool of water and they can imagine the thoughts of people in the world and, and they realize the thoughts of people that are going to commit a crime before they commit it, and so these future police go out and arrest people for the crime that they might have committed. <laughs> well, that's what we're doing in the war on drugs. And the reason I say that is uh, we've, we've created a situation where we are supposed to go out and arrest drug dealers, not because they're hurting somebody. 
we're supposed to arrest drug users, not because they're hurting somebody, but because they may commit a crime in the future because they're using those drugs. Because we say, well, if you're a drug user, then eventually you're going to be breaking into houses, stealing money, you know, to pay for your drugs. So we've got to get you off the street now. So that's just like minority report. We're, we're not we're not arresting them for the crime they're committing. We're arresting them because we're afraid they may create a crime in the future. And these crimes that we're worried that they may create in the future all turn on the fact that drugs are prohibited. When you when you prohibit a drug, it doesn't matter what drug you're talking about. Uh, even coffee, by the way, was prohibited at, at one time in uh, Central Europe. And around 1550, uh, in Central Europe, possession of coffee was the capital offense. So it doesn't matter which drug is picked. Wow. What, what happens instantly when, when you prohibit the drug is instantly there's an underground market for that particular drug 100%. and worse uh now that now the drug is networked for the underground market is naturally filled with criminals but the worst thing is now because this drug is dangerous to supply because you can get arrested you can get killed by other drug dealers you can go to prison for life all it's very dangerous to get into this work that very danger itself creates an artificial inflated value for these drugs, a value that is so obscenely high that between where they're produced, mainly in developing countries, and where they're sold in the U.S. or Europe or Canada, those values can increase by more than 17,000%. Now, this is literally an obscene profit motive, and that profit motive is what drives everything that occurs after that. So it is that profit motive that means there's going to be so many young entrepreneurs, new people that want to get involved in selling the drugs. They're willing to take whatever risk it is to, to get this huge profit. So what I learned very early on, living out in the streets, I was out there for 14 years undercover, uh, that... If a uniformed police officer arrests someone for, say, uh, committing a robbery or a rape, the number of robberies and rapes in your communities goes down, right? You got the guy. Yeah, exactly. But when I arrested someone for selling drugs, the number of drug sales didn't change at all. I was just creating an opening for hundreds of more people willing to take the risk for this obscene profit motive. As a matter of fact, it was worse than creating a job opening. I was creating a safe job opening because if the person who wanted that job went down on the street corner while the guy was still selling the drugs and tried to take the job away, he'd probably get shot. But after the police make that opening, they got to have a replacement. And this has gone on for 40 years. So what you're saying is if we would legalize all these drugs, even the hard drugs, rather than, say, murderous drug dealers and drug gangs controlling the supply of, of these commodities that people clearly want, instead you'd have private corporations controlling the market and, I guess, selling these drugs to make money rather than commit a violent 
acts of gang warfare. Well, I wouldn't want to see corporations involved in it. I'd much rather see the government involved in it. Uh, because I know the bottom line for the corporation is to make a buck. And uh, you can see, for instance, what the uh, what the big tobacco companies did when six of them got caught uh, making this mo- most dangerous of all social drugs even more dangerous than the most addictive drug known to humans, cigarettes, making them even more dangerous by putting materials into them that were unnecessary, that were just guaranteed to to make people more addicted quicker. Uh, I have no doubt that if it went to the corporations, that sort of thing would be happening. But if it goes to the government, uh, if the government produces these drugs, first off, they can be produced for almost nothing. Think of what we're talking about here. Basically, we're talking about weeds. I don't care whether you're talking about marijuana from a cannabis plant or coca from cocaine from a coca bush or heroin from a opium poppy these are all basically just weeds and until we say they're illegal they have zero value because they will grow anywhere they are so prolific you know the, those charged with uh, destroying them like uh, i was we we go down and pull them up by the roots or we cut them off uh, at the stalks at the bottoms or we uh we fly over them and spray poison on them, and of course we also poison those campesinos that are that are growing these things. But we don't worry about that too much because they're only third world folks after all. But the point is, we've got to go back every year and do it all over again because these plants are so hardy; they just pop right up again. They don't even need tending, and because they are so hardy, as I say, zero value they have until we say. They're illegal. And as soon as we say they're illegal, you get the kind of thing that we have with marijuana. You know, until two years ago, till the downturn in the economy, marijuana was worth more than gold. It's a weed. Today it's worth just slightly less than gold. (laughs) Wow. Heroin is worth more than plutonium. Heroin is probably the most expensive commodity on the face of the earth, ounce for ounce. And it's just a weed the opium poppy and converting it to heroin is a very simple process that anyone with a high school chemistry uh, class can do for almost nothing so what would you 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 brought up that you'd much rather see you know the government involved in, in selling these illegal drugs what would you say to people who may object to a policy like that on moral grounds well, I would say to me, the, the, the moral, the problem morally is to allow people to die needlessly when we could be stopping that, to allow people to be, uh, become addicted to these drugs needlessly when we could be stopping that, to die of overdose deaths when, when they don't have to, to contract AIDS and hepatitis when they don't have to. All those things we could have effects in stopping if we legalize the drugs. Let me explain why. In every country around the world where they've done anything to uh, reduce these repressive laws that we have for drug prohibition, in every country that they've done that, they have a better situation today than before they reduced the laws. Uh, There's a lot of countries that have decriminalized drugs. 
no country has legalized drugs because every country is afraid of what the United States would do to them if they ever legalize those drugs. You know, we have laws right now that say, on the books that say countries have to pass our whatever statement we put up there uh, as to how well they did with their drug enforcement before we'll give them money. And if they don't, if they don't pass this value that we've set, uh, they lose their chance to get any funding from the U.S. for that year. And then the next year they have to pass it again before they get funded. So they, they're afraid that if, uh, if they legalize the drugs, we would at, least, at the very least apply economic sanctions to them. Okay. So if drugs are to become legalized and become under the control of supervised by the government, would you see them regulated the same way alcohol is regulated with an age restriction, blood alcohol content, um, regulations like that? Would you see that with um, with the use of drugs? Because you were mentioning uh, protecting the welfare of people, which could include, you know, limiting what how much people can buy or how much is in their system when they operate machinery, anything like that. Now, legalizing drugs doesn't mean that we put you know, 55-gallon drums out in the schoolyards and say, there it is, kids, go get it. Legalizing simply means that we are going to take control. We are going to have the responsibility of regulating those drugs. And the regulation would be very heavy, very strong. And the regulation would be different depending on the drugs because some of these drugs are much more dangerous than others of the drugs. Uh, for some of the drugs, the less dangerous drugs, we might treat them, as you mentioned, like alcohol. But all the drugs, we would hope, would only be sold to adults. And the point of that is to, to stop, stop our children from getting these drugs. You know, for the last 30 years, our kids have said, our kids from high school, even junior high, have said it's easier for them to buy illegal drugs than it is for them to buy beer and cigarettes. And, of course, I'm sure you know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they don't get carded. They go to a drug dealer, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But if they go to some place that sells l- drugs that are legal commodities, beer and cigarettes, those are simply drugs that are legal. Uh, and they are only sold where we say they should be sold. Mm-hmm. We regulate the sale. And we license the people selling them. And the people that are selling them make a good living. And they know that if they caught selling to minors... They're going to lose that license. So we have some control over them. We have no control whatsoever over people selling illegal drugs. They are the ones who regulate what drugs will be supplied to our communities, how much those drugs will cost, uh, uh, where those drugs are going to be sold, how potent they're going to be, uh, what age group they're going to sell to. And when they determine they're going to sell heroin to 10-year-old kids on our playgrounds, that's what happens. Mm -hmm. But we can stop all that if we legalize these things. Mm-hmm. You brought up earlier in the interview about uh, the role that race played in the war on drugs. So I wanted to you know, go in that direction now. How did uh, police officers choose which neighborhoods to focus on when it came to enforcing these, uh, these drug laws? Well, early on, uh, we, we were focused <laughs> by, uh, by the people who created the war on drugs. And, and as I said, the war on drugs was originally created by Richard Milhouse Nixon. Uh, but but I, I also made the statement that, 
that all these laws have had to, more to do with racism than they have had to do with drugs. Let me explain to you why, and then we'll come back to Mr. Nixon. Yeah, go ahead. The first drug that was made illegal on a federal level was uh, opiates, and that didn't happen until 1914. Now, that was definitely had more to do with racism than it did to do with uh, any kind of drug problem. You see, we had invited the Chinese in the late 19th century to come to our country and help us build the railroads because it was such a dangerous job. None of the real Americans wanted to do that. But after the railroads were built and the Chinese settled mainly up in the San Francisco territory area, uh, the real Americans were saying, oh, these, these Chinese are taking away our jobs. Now, we couldn't deport them because we'd invited them into the country, but if we, if we had the right laws, we could certainly arrest and imprison them and, and put them in a position where we didn't have to worry about them taking our jobs. So you're saying the, the prohibition of opium was motivated almost entirely by getting these uh, newly immigrated Chinese Americans to, to no longer compete with, with white Americans for jobs? That's right. And we, we can be pretty sure that that's the case because the forerunner to the, the federal law was created in uh, San Francisco uh, territories in 1909, and that law simply said, no Chinaman shall possess opium. So it was pretty evident who we are after there. Now, when they, they created the federal law in 1914, they took the word Chinaman out. Oh, well, that's that was uh, considerate of them, I guess. <laughs> right. But they also knew that that about 99% of the the people who possessed opium in this country were Chinese, so it's still got the same job done. Uh, now, many other things were made illegal in, in the ensuing years, and every time another drug was made illegal, it had something to do with uh, racism with ethnic uh, some uh, some ethnic group that uh, we were against, including alcohol. When yeah. alcohol was prohibited, prohibited, the Ku Klux Klan had a great deal to do with that uh, prohibition of alcohol coming into uh, into effect. Yeah, I've heard uh, that the Klan was really at their height during the 1920s, and that uh, alcohol prohibition. The reason alcohol was made illegal was to deal with Irish and Italian uh, Catholic immigrants. Is that right? That's right, and and with those nasty black folks down south. I mean, obviously, they could arrest people, a lot more people, and and, and imprison them if they were breaking laws over drinking alcohol. Uh, similar things happened when cocaine was made uh, illegal and uh, when uh, marijuana was late, later made illegal in 1937. And with marijuana, that was strictly economics. It had nothing to do with the drugs. It was all about uh, the economic end of the thing. And But racism was used in order to inflame the, the people of the United States and, and get them upset about the drugs so that they could be made illegal. Uh, it was William Randolph Hearst and the DuPont brothers that were probably most significant to 
making marijuana illegal. And, you know, marijuana up until then had always been called cannabis, just like it's called in every other country. But uh, what... What marijuana was was just, uh, you know, to make it sound Mexican. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And it really wasn't aimed at marijuana at all, the laws. The, The laws, the reason for the laws was to do away with growing hemp. Now, hemp is, uh, is another plant uh, from the same type of uh, thing as, as cannabis, but it's it's uh, it has almost no THC value. You'd have to smoke a bushel barrel full of it to get high once, you know. It's, it, it just, but it has 5,000 different things and products that can be made from growing hemp. And uh, up until that time, all farmers all throughout the country grew hemp. But what had happened was uh, William Randolph Hearst had, he, he was not only expanding his corporations horizontally by buying more and more newspapers, he was also credited with being the first person to expand vertically, which meant that he actually went back and he, he bought up a bunch of old growth forests and then he bought the lumber companies that would cut the forest down, and then he bought the trucking companies that would uh, take those trees to the lumber mills and to the to the pulp mills, and he bought the pulp mills. So he had everything from the tree up to the newspaper creation. And he had just put all this money out to do this when uh, somebody invented a thing, sort of like when they invented the cotton gin to pick cotton. Uh, this this was a machine that would strip the uh, the stalks of of marijuana down and allow for very rapid uh, processing that could make it into a paper type product. And of course, uh, cannabis uh, hemp paper hemp paper lasts forever, and it takes. Uh, print much better than the paper we have today. So he had to stop that somehow, or he would lose a lot of money. That makes and, sense. And the way he decided he would stop that was he hired uh, uh, Harry, Harry Anslinger, who effectively became our first drug czar. And Harry Anslinger, by the way, was uh, I think it was the nephew of one of the. Uh, DuPont brothers, and they also had invented the nylon rope back then. And, and nylon rope was a very good thing, but it was very expensive. And for forever, we had used rope made out of hemp. We even tied up battleships with rope made out of hemp. So, you know, it, uh, it was pretty good rope, and it was very, very cheap. So these these two folks got together to do away with hemp, and the way that you do that is you you say that uh, Harry Anslinger would make these horrible racial statements of, about black folks seducing white women in their jazz clubs with marijuana and uh, all these terrible things that they were saying, and Hirsch would would publish it all in in all of his newspapers. And by 1937, they managed to end, they managed to pass a law that didn't just outlaw 
cannabis, it outlawed hemp, and that was the target. So, how did we get from from the 1930s? How did we end up with the situation we have now with uh, Nixon's war on drugs? Like, well, things things were were got pretty bad for some folks, poorer folks, and and certain people that were using a little bit of cannabis, but it wasn't anywhere like it was after the war on drugs. What happened with the war on drugs is Nixon, in 1968, was running for the presidency. He was running for the second time, and he thought this time it'd really be nice if he won. <laughs> and he, he was a strong anti-crime guy. He knew that would bring in a lot of votes, but he also knew, boy, if he could be in charge of this war on drugs, how those votes would pour in. And he was right, of course. He went to uh, New Hampshire, uh, as everybody does, the first state he was going to campaign in. Right. And when he was up there, uh, he did so well that he wrote a letter back to his mentor, Eisenhower, whom he had served as uh, vice president under. And he, he wrote this letter. We have a copy of the, the letter. And the letter said, in effect, hey, Ike, uh, it's just amazing what you can do to convince people that uh, to vote for you by using fear. He said, all I talk about up here in New Hampshire is drugs and crime, and everybody wants to vote for me. And he said, you know, Ike, they don't even have any black folks up here. So you get an idea of which way he was headed, right? And then he was elected, and in his first year in office, he managed to get the U.S. Congress to pass these huge, huge uh, funding bills that I mentioned earlier. But this, he had a, another motive for doing this, and that motive is very much reflected in, uh, in 1969. His chief of staff came from a meeting with the president, and he sat down at his desk, took out his diary, and he wrote in his diary, I just left a, uh, a meeting with Mr. Nixon and... President Nixon, and he's got this in quotes, emphasized that you have to face the fact that the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognizes this while not appearing to. So who, and, who was that uh, chief of staff who, who wrote this? That Haldeman. And, and this is on the record that he, he wrote about, like, this is confirmed? that sure. the, This we, conversation we, with him and Nixon? diary. We got his diary from when uh, when Nixon got drummed out of office there, and that was in 1969. He wrote that, and and to me, Nixon's answer to that little conundrum was the war on drugs, because the war on drugs has literally devastated the black community. Uh, if you look, if you want to know who uses, who sells drugs in the United States, all you got to do is look at the federal household survey it's done every year and it says that 72 percent of the folks doing that look just like me a bunch of white guys only 13.5 percent of those people are black but now who gets arrested 37 percent of all the people arrested for drug violations are black folks who goes to prison 60 percent of all the people in state prisons for drug felonies are 
black folks. 81% of the people in federal prisons for drug violations are black folks. 81%. They're only 13% of the problem. Right. Well, what is the uh, the methodology of that uh, survey that you brought up? Like, how, uh, how accurate, uh, like, how sure can we be of the results? Well, I don't know how sure you can be of any result. It's a, it's a federal household survey. It's done uh, mainly by telephone calls. I'm sure everybody doesn't tell the truth, but uh, it's done every year, and you have to have something to, to come up with some sort of standard, all right? But whether it, whether it's a little bit higher or a little bit lower... You've got 72% of the people, of the white folks, saying, yes, I use drugs. And uh, 13% of the black folks saying, yes, I use drugs. So that, that's quite a, a difference of people admitting things, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So where does that disparity, uh, I guess, come from? Like, I, I mean... Does it start? I'm sorry, I, I misled you on that. I, I, it's not seventy-two percent of the white folks saying I use drugs, and thirteen percent of the black folks. It's seventy-two percent of the people who admit that they use drugs are white, and thirteen percent of the people who admit they use drugs are black. Yeah, that's an important clarification. <laughs> yeah, and the same for selling drugs. Actually, the the number of people using drugs isn't isn't uh, nearly as high as that. As, as I told you. Thanks to the war on drugs, it's up to 46% of the population above the age of 12 says that they've used an illegal drug in their life, which makes 40%, 46% of the population a criminal, doesn't it? Even with that tremendous increase in the number of people using drugs, one stat hasn't changed in 100 years, and that is the amount of people addicted to drugs. You know, in 1914, when we were getting ready to make a federal law that says what you put in your body will make you a criminal, this is the first time ever in our history that we did this. Right. And in order to convince the public that this was necessary, the government said that they had done studies and that 1.3% of the population was addicted to drugs, and they said, we've got to stop this, we've got to make some of these illegal, so we're going to make heroin illegal or opiates illegal now you fast forward ahead 56 years to we're getting ready to start a war on drugs this is even a a larger step not only are we going to say you're a criminal if you put something in your body but now we're going to start a war on you so the government went out and they did a survey to justify this and they discovered that 1.3 percent of the people were addicted to drugs now it's 40 years later you know 100 years past virtually. Forty years later, we've been fighting the war on drugs for four decades. We spent a trillion and a half dollars on that war. Uh, All we have to show for all that money spent is that drugs are are more potent, they're cheaper, and they're far easier for kids to access. And this is after we have made 41 million arrests in this country for nonviolent drug offenses. Okay? But today, the government tells us 1.3% of the population is addicted to drugs. That hasn't changed. No matter what we've done in 100 years, that hasn't changed. But, you know, some stats really have changed dramatically 
And those stats are, that I'm referring to are uh, like the clearance rate for major crimes, that uh, police are solving these crimes and, and they're arresting the people, the perpetrators. In 1963, our police were, I think correctly, credited with solving 91% of the murders in this country. 1963. Right. Then came 1970 and the war on drugs, and that started dropping and dropping and dropping. Today... Wait, wait, wait a second. So the clearance rate for major crimes, like violent crimes, has, is going down and has gone down because of this focus on this victimless crime of drug usage and drug dealing? That's exactly so. Today, instead of solving 91% of the murders, we solve 61% of the murders. That's Un- unbelievable. Yeah, and, and not only that, 40% of all the murders go unsolved, as I just pointed out. Right. 60% of all rapes and arsons go unsolved. 75% of all robberies in the United States are unsolved, ever. They're just never solved. So does this have an effect on um, when when uh, when someone who breaks the laws according to war on drugs? Do they uh, what's it what's it look like in prison? What's the makeup of that in prison? How many what percentages of minor drug usage or anything like that? How much time and follow up to that? How much time does that really take up with the police force? Well, the the nonviolent drug offenders. I mean. They might have been violent on some occasion, but these are people who are convicted of a nonviolent offense, of an actual drug offense, possession, use, uh, distribution, transportation, something. Right. They make up 20% of, of all people in state prisons. They make up about 60% of all people in federal prisons. But that is only the start. Now, what about all the people who are in those prisons for committing crimes in order to get money to pay for drugs. On the state level, that's 17 more percent, and on the federal level, that's 13 more percent. So that means that uh, you're getting up to the area of about half of the people in prison are there because of drugs. My God. And it's not because of drugs as per se, it's because of the prohibition of drugs. Because if these drugs were legal and regulated, nobody would have to commit a crime to get those drugs, and nobody would be in prison over it. And nobody would be committing violent crimes in order to get the drugs or in order to control the market or anything. All that stuff wouldn't exist anymore. That's what LEAP is after. And in eight years that we've been around, we went from those five founding police officers to over 50,000 people that we re- represent. We're no longer just police. Now we're police, judges, prosecutors, prison wardens, DEA and FBI agents. Uh, we have supporters in 78 countries. And we exist because we want to end drug prohibition. And we want to end drug prohibition because we know that by doing that, we can reduce death disease, crime, and addiction. And we can save billions of dollars. You know, Mm -hmm. we spend $70 billion a year, every year that we continue the war on drugs just to prosecute that war. 
seventy billion dollars. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, two years ago, we asked the uh, Harvard School of Economics to do a study uh, to determine how much new money the, the U.S. Treasury would realize if we legalized all drugs, regulated them, and then taxed them just at the rate of tobacco and alcohol. A terrific and, and a very conservative uh, uh, economist by the name of Jeffrey Myron did the study. Mm-hmm. And he determined that if we did that, legalize, regulate, tax drugs, we would the U.S. Treasury would realize a minimum of $76.8 billion more dollars every year. That's a lot of money. Yeah, it absolutely is. You've mentioned before, you know, some of these uh, gross, I guess, racial disparities with regards to arrests, incarceration, despite the uh, statistics about usage, which show that African Americans uh, only use and sell drugs they only make up 13% of the drug users and, and dealers. So do you believe that you know, racial profiling plays a role in the implementation of these drug laws? And uh, if so, why? Well, it plays a tremendous role. And the, and the reason it plays such a large role is because, as I say, we went from being a country of law enforcers who believe in community policing and solving crimes before you have to arrest people, uh, in preventing crimes and trying to to help people, to a group of today uh, law enforcers that are driven by a numbers game. Think of what happened that first year when when Nixon got the Congress to pass these huge bills and, and for instance, the New Jersey State Police increased the size of its narcotics unit from seven men to 76 people overnight, made it into a bureau overnight, all paid for by the federal government. They were expected to make 10 times as many arrests, I'm guessing? Absolutely. Absolutely. In the next year, we were expected to go out and arrest 11 times, actually, more people than we did the year before for drug violations. And that wasn't easy to do in 1970 because there just weren't drug dealers everywhere like there are today. They weren't in, our, in all of our schools. They weren't in, you know, on every street corner. They weren't in suburbs and in, in rural America like they are today. You had to go to the big cities. You had to actually go to the ghettos back then in order to buy drugs. And uh, I didn't happen to work in the ghetto. I, I was stationed out in uh, in northern New Jersey up in uh, Wayne, about 20 miles outside of New York City in a suburb. So they targeted folks like me against small groups, just tiny friendship groups. 10, 15 people in the group, young folks, young folks in high school or in college or in between. And once we became their friends, come Friday night, uh, they're out of school, they're off work, somebody would say, hey, you want to get high tonight? And of course, if nobody said that, that was my job, right? Your job was to was to <clears throat> convince these kids to use drugs? No, my Bait job them. was to suggest, anyone want to get high? I mean, my job was to find out who who w- could get drugs, right? And then, and then the in, the, just the, the intent. And then if anybody took me up on it, one of the uh, friends in the group, who, maybe the person had uh, access to the family car that night or some other way to get to New York City, would go around to the other friends and say, hey, you want to get high tonight? I'm going to make the run tonight. 
And, uh, you know, some, some people say yes, some people say no. The ones that said yes might say, well, yeah, well, while you're in there, give me a couple joints, will you? Or uh, I heard there's some really good blotter acid. While you're in there, give me a hit of blotter acid. And they'd go around the circle, and when they came to me, I'd put my order in for the same tiny little bit of drugs, right? Because I wanted to look like everybody else. You don't order more. And off the person would go to the city when they returned uh, within an hour uh, and held, handed out the drugs to their friends. When they handed it to me, a couple joints, they became a big-time drug dealer because that's what we labeled them, and that is what stuck. And I would stay in that group until I had everybody in the group. Very easy to do because the person that made the run the first time didn't want to make the run the next time we were getting high because... They weren't making any money off these drugs. They weren't even getting their gas money back. So they expected, you know, next time somebody else would do it and somebody else and somebody else. I just stay there until I got everybody with charges like this. And I might be working 10 of these uh, groups at the same time uh, in different, different uh, cities, different suburbs. So about every 45 days, uh, we'd have charges on maybe... 100 people like this and we'd hold a raid we'd swoop in with 350 cops at 5 o'clock in the morning and we'd kick down their doors and drag them out in chains when we got them down to the police station we would already have the uh, reporters lined up there to you know take their pictures in the perp walk and, and publish them and destroy any credibility any respectability they had in their communities then when we got all these folks lined up against the back wall, my boss would come out and say to the reporters, you see that? You see that back there? That's a hundred major drug dealers we took out of your community. Major drug dealers. And, and then he'd tell them, the, the reporters, we've got to stop this. This is the worst thing that's ever happened in the United States. We, we have to stop it. We need more money so we can hire more police. We need more money for surveillance equipment and better guns and this and that and cars. And and, and we need harsher sentences. And, and we've got to end this stuff. And the reporters would go away and they would write these stories that just scared the hell out of everybody. And they would get everything they wanted. So that's... Now, now think of what's happening there. We had 76 troopers in New Jersey now in Narcotic Bureau. And about maybe maybe a third of them were uh, undercover. So that's around 25 uh, undercover agents. And they're each doing what I was doing. So this means every couple months we were bringing in around 2,500 people with charges of distribution of drugs on them. Back then, everybody convicted, which was practically everybody brought in, was going away to prison for seven years. These people were being arrested when they were young kids, when they they hadn't even had their schooling, and they're arrested uh, because they're uh, dabbing in drugs. What happens when they come out of prison years later? Nobody wants to hire them. The only place they can turn to for any help is the drug culture, the very group we say we're trying to save them from. So in, in just a few years, we had all kinds of drug dealers on the streets. 
Wow. Okay. So what you're saying is that police would would trick these ordinary kids uh, who just use drugs recreationally? We weren't tricking them. We were just making a suggestion. Oh, okay. Making a suggestion. uh, (laughs) And and you didn't usually even have to do that. But if nobody brought it up, it was our job to bring it up. Mm. And the point of this was to was to create this uh, media narrative that that the war on drugs is is a this menace and that uh, there's this enormous drug problem in the country that didn't really exist. Or more yet, that the war on drugs was successful. Well, I don't think it was, it just came out like that. Here's the way it came out, but it did. It, that's what it, that's what happened. But here's the way it came out. First off, Nixon. I'm sure Nixon didn't even realize what a diabolical thing he did when he when he enlarged these drug units in police departments all across the U.S. But what he did was he created a system where suddenly all these police administrators got a lot more power. You know, we had seventy, we had seventeen hundred troopers. And then all of a sudden, we got to hire 76 more troopers to replace the 76 of us that were made into detectives. I mean, think of the extra power that gave the the administrators and the the state police that increased their size so greatly, okay? That was all paid for that first year by the the, uh, federal government. But who was going to pay for it in the next year and the year after that and every other year? You know, somebody had to pay for those 76 new troopers that were hired. So the administrators realized what they had to do was they had to make the war on drugs look so essential <laughs> that the federal government would go on paying for it. So do you think success with this current war on drugs policy is even possible? Like, there's, if there's any way to retool what we're doing, or, or is legalization no. the only answer? Legalization is absolutely the only answer. This isn't something you could retool. We've been we've been trying to retool for forty years. Uh, they say at at some point in the nineteen eighties. Well, it started the way I told you it started, and then we retooled and we said, well, no, we've got to just go after the real drug dealers, the big time drug dealers. You know, not not a bunch of kids that are dipping in and accommodating friends. So we went out and we tried to get major drug dealers and then in 1980 along came two things happened that made this a self-perpetuating constantly expanding policy policy disaster the first thing was the politicians really got into it at that point and they said listen you cops are doing a great job but if you just arrest a few more people we promise we'll back you 100 percent we'll create the harshest laws that have ever existed mandatory minimum sentences Things like three strikes, you're outlaw in, in California. You know, if, uh, if, you, if you get arrested three times, you go to prison for life. No excuse. You're done. And we said, well, okay, we'll, we'll try that. That sounds good. And also in 1980, we got a new president, Ronald Reagan, right? And Mr. Reagan, he really liked what we were doing. He said, you cops are doing a wonderful job. But, you know, you've got to look at this like it's an economics equation. He says, you're on the wrong side. You're out there on the supply side arresting dealers. And you should be on the demand side arresting users. Because if you arrest enough users, 
you scare the users away. And, of course, if there aren't any users there, there won't be any dealers. And we said, well, that has some sort of logic to it. Let's, let's try that. But that was our downfall, absolutely our downfall. Before we started the war on drugs, you could, you could count the number of arrests in the United States for nonviolent drug offenses in the tens of thousands, the high tens, but still the tens of thousands. And in that first year when we increased all of our, our police by seven, eight, nine, in my case, ten times, eleven times its size, uh, people arresting these people, that next year we made 415,000 arrests for nonviolent drug offenses. And it creeped up just very slowly over the years. It was up to about 500,000 come 1980 when Reagan said, no, get out there and arrest users. So then we went back and specifically started arresting users. And by 20 years later, by 1999, we had quadrupled the number of people we were arresting. We had kicked it up to 1.9 million people every year. 1.9 million. So, and we you know, do this... everything we can do to destroy those people's lives, you know? We, we uh, in most states, unless you've got a, unless you, you've, you've made less repressive laws and, and you decriminalize marijuana or something, in most states, if you get caught with so much as one marijuana cigarette, the first thing we do is we take your driver's license away. And we do that even if you were caught in your bedroom with it, you know, if it had nothing to do with driving. In most of the United States, we don't have public transportation. In, in certainly in, in rural and in suburban America, we don't have public transportation. If you take the driver's license away of a young man or a young woman who may be married, maybe uh, have a child, maybe the, the breadwinner for the family, they can no longer be gainfully employed, right? So this doesn't just hurt the individual. It, 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 it captures the entire family and starts sucking it into this whirlpool it just drags it down deeper and deeper, and it's so hard to get out once you've been arrested. We're almost out of time, so I, uh, this is the last question I have for you. If legalization makes so much sense for policy reasons, what's holding it back in this country? <laughs> All right. Uh, what's holding it back is there's, there's just something out there for everybody. And it's it's not good stuff, believe me. There's a there's a great book that your audience should read. It's called Smoke and Mirrors: The War on Drugs and Politics of Failure. It's by Dan Baum. And just let me read one paragraph quickly from the introduction. It says the country began using police to control the use of certain drugs in 1914, but the war on drugs in name and in spirit started during the 1968 presidential campaign when the country discovered how, in quote, drugs could stand in for a host of troubles too awkward to discuss plainly. The war metaphor worked for Richard Nixon that year. It continues to work for politicians ranging from Jesse Jackson to Jesse Helms because nearly everyone has found a reason to enlist. Parents appalled by their teens' behavior Police starve for revenue. Conservative politicians pandering to their constituents' moral dudgeon. Liberal politicians needing a chance to look tough. Presidents 
looking for distractions from scandal. Whites and blacks striving to explain the ghetto. Editors filling page one. Spies and colonels needing an enemy to replace communism. The war on drugs is about a lot of things, but only rarely is it really about drugs. That's why. All right. Well, that was a great way to end the show, and uh, thank you for your time, Jack, and uh, it was uh, great having you on. Thank you. Thank you. That was Core of the Matter for this week, our weekly public affairs show here on 90.3 The Core. I'm your host, Yashwant Manjana, and uh, you were just listening to my interview with Jack Cole, the founder of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. So, you know, I wasn't kidding when I said, you know, by 8.05, you will never think about the war on drugs the same way again. So um, I hope those of you listening will uh, rethink that policy different, uh, think about that policy differently from now on. That's all we have for you this week. Uh, Join me next week. Right here, Tuesday night, 7 p.m. on 90.3 The Core, when uh, we're going to do a show about uh, the revolution in Egypt, the aftermath, what's going on right now. And uh, we're going to be talking to some people who are actually on the ground when the revolution started and are still there in Egypt. So I hope you guys enjoy that show. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and I uh, hope you guys are too. Again, you listen to Core of the Matter here on 90.3 The Core. Uh, stay tuned for some more great Core Radio.